Welcome, everybody, uh, to the Godcast. Uh, I am Xavier. I'm Rylan. And I'm Balin. And we are joined here again by Mr. Graham Herman, who is a member of the Theosophical Society, for our second episode in Season 2. So, um, that being said, we wanted to have basically Season 2 be an in-depth dive into the previous uh, concepts which we touched on in Season 1, with the exception of our first episode in Season 2, which is the United Methodist Church, which was a completely new thing, so that wasn't like an in-depth dive, that was kind of a general overview, but... Uh, for this, the topic of this episode is mysticism in the Theosophical Society. So we're trying to talk about the uh, aspects of mysticism in theosophy and the traditions that it encompasses um, for this episode. So that being said, our first question is basically, how do the, uh, theosophists practice theosophy? Well, that's an interesting question. Um, it's, I'd say it, it's about as diverse as the people who belong to it. So everybody kind of approaches it different. Um, I don't know if there's like an exact doctrine that people follow. So uh, yeah, people kind of come with all kinds of different ways to look at it and uh, approach just theosophy in itself. So what are some experiences that you have had with the more mystical side of theosophy? Okay, well, so I guess like a big key part of theosophy that we get into the mystical side is there's the um, the two masters, Kuhumi and Mayora, um, and they are like uh, two people that Levatsky had talked to and Senate, another person, AP Senate, um, and they're kind of these like gurus that live in uh, the Himalayas um, that talk, that like gave uh, psychic transmissions to AP Senate, so they wrote the Mahatma letters. Um, I'd say that and they also uh, correspond psychically with uh, Blavatsky, and that's how she came up with her secret doctrine and um, Isis Unveiled and all of her great works. So that's kind of like the biggest mysticism that I encounter uh, regularly with uh, theosophy. But uh, just because it's such a vast and diverse crowd, uh, I've experienced lots of different other mysticism com. Uh, comments are not the right way to say it, but uh, ideas and concepts. And um, yeah, so there's kind of a lot of different kinds of ways mysticism's approached. Um, it kind of depends on what the person brings to theosophy is how they kind of tend to approach the ideas of mysticism and those concepts. And the idea of like a psychic correspondence, as we touched on in the last episode, uh, last episode that we did, is that essentially kind of like uh, these masters were um, trans were basically transmitting their thoughts into the minds of Blavatsky and the other person who you mentioned. Yeah. So um, when Blavatsky left uh, Russia, she traveled down through the Himalayas and into India, and that's where she met. There's some, it gets kind of cloudy, but uh, at one point she met some mystics in the Himalayas and they taught her how to receive these transmissions. And so that's where she got it from. Uh, AP Senate, it's a little different. Like they just got their transmissions from the masters. Um, and then there's also some stories of the, so there's a series of letters that were written called the Mahatma letters that are these transmissions. And some of the Mahatma letters, uh, are said to have just self manifested, um, like writing just started showing up on paper and kind of these things. So it's it's a little different to each 
person how it happened. But yeah, basically there's these, uh, they call them the masters or maybe call them the adepts. And they're like advanced spiritual teachers that uh, Blavatsky was able to communicate with. And some of the earlier members of TS were able to communicate with. And my understanding is that there were, there were seven of these masters. Am I correct on that? Uh, well, so for TS, there's two. There's Kuhumi and Mayora. And those are the two that we talk about the most, but there are other masters. So the number seven could come up. So there's like people like St. Germain or even the concept of Buddha is kind of a master, like um, because he, it, the spiritual identity keeps reincarnating in a person. And that's kind of how a master may live eternally. Like, uh, because the master is kind of somebody who's stepped outside of the physical realm and started to reach into these like more cosmic realms. So um, like Kuhumi and Mayora, while they, they are rumored to have physical presences, sometimes there's an idea that maybe they were just more like energetic beings and, uh, and that's how they were able to communicate. Uh, yeah, I don't, it gets, people kind of take it different ways. So it's kind of hard to like pin it down to one thing because it, it kind of diverse ideas on how that works. No, that's absolutely fascinating. And uh, Balin, Ryland, do you have anything to add? So I was just wondering, uh, how does like prayer and meditation work? Is is like is meditation a part of your theology or prayer? Like, and how often? Like, what does that usually look like? Okay, so yeah, like um, I, I don't know if this is per se exactly TS, but an idea that I have learned at TS is that prayer is like asking God, and meditation is listening to God. So. Uh, a lot of us practice both. And like, you know, like we may pray for something, but at the same time, when we're done praying, we'll take a moment of silence just to kind of hear like what the universe is saying. And that's where meditation comes into play. Um, but that doesn't always directly really relate to everybody in the TS. It's just kind of a concept that I've heard floated around a lot. Like a meditation and I guess the... Um... In, in the sense of just sitting there and listening, I, I've, 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 I attempted that like several, several years ago with, uh, with one of my, uh, a guy who was, who was a, who was a friend of mine at the time. And we were, we were sitting there and it was, it was so, it was so difficult because I, I, in, in, in my approach to it, I was attempt, I was basically attempting to think about absolutely nothing. Um, and that was, uh, that, that, that was quite difficult. Although, otherwise I suppose you could maybe approach it a different way and actually, um, meditate on something which i guess would be a different uh a, a view of that so um I, i'm curious uh, so you as a member of the theosophical society um what, what do you have do you have do you have any experiences uh with meditation because i know that we asked a uh, a member of the uh of the pure land of the japanese buddhist uh, community who's in in tacoma and he said that um when people were meditating going on retreats they'd be kind of um um shocked because they would they would uh, confront themselves and that was a very um um uh telling experience so i'm wondering um how, how how what your experience with meditation is yeah so i actually practice meditation quite a bit like i um i have different ways to meditate uh, like the easiest way for me and kind of the easiest way to introduce people is like my breathing practice of meditation so uh first i concentrate on my breath in and i usually do it through my nose and then I follow it all the way down and then my exhale is out my mouth and I follow that. And so, because in meditation, you're never going to not think about anything, but if you can focus on one thing, 
it makes it easier kind of to let go of the other things. And so like the breathing is the easiest thing. You have to do it. Everybody does it. So the easiest way to kind of get into the cycle and also it allows yourself to kind of give yourself a way to examine your body, right? Like, so when I breathe in, I'm examining like how the air is going in, what the feeling of it coming in. Like, am I feeling peaceful when I breathe in? Am I feeling angry? And then same with the exhale. Like, what is, what am I exhaling and what am I bringing out of myself and how does that feel? And so meditation, a good way to start is to just kind of focus on those things. And then like, um, as I've moved on, so other meditation things I have is like, once I've kind of found myself in a state where I'm relaxed, I, um, I let my thoughts be like a river. And so they're always flowing past me and always going, but I never hold on to anything. I just let the river flow and just kind of like, if I notice that like a thought keeps swirling around and like a, a gets caught in the river by me, you know, like I can take a moment and look at it. And then once I realize it's kind of caught in my head in the flow, I can help send it back down the river. And so uh, I'd say that's a little bit more of advanced meditation, but it's also a good way to, it's, it's part of the listening process because you start letting things flow and then your everyday thoughts are gone by and you start getting into kind of your deeper recessed thoughts and like your more parts that you don't examine every day. And uh, it's just a good, that's just a good visualization way to kind of uh, let that go by is, yeah, like uh, my, one of my meditation teachers, he likes to say, sit on the bank by the river and, you know, just kind of let everything flow by, observe it, you know, watch it, be aware of what it is, but don't hold on to anything. And I, I feel like those are kind of two good steps to meditation. Well, it's so fascinating how you said you're never going to think of nothing, but it, but if you focus on that one thing, I, I, I guess you, you, you can kind of minimize your focus. So if you, I mean, I, I just find that so fascinating because by, by focusing intently on one thing, you your window of focus minimizes and then it, it can become a rhythm and then it, it becomes kind of subconscious. I, I, I find that really, I, I thought that illustration was, was really good because that, that solves the issue of like, hey, I'm trying to think about nothing and then I wind up thinking about thinking about nothing as opposed to um, letting it fall into a rhythm by first focusing on one thing and then it kind of... Um, it, then, then it kind of uh, you can kind of focus on those those deeper uh, almost subconscious thoughts. Um, I know that Balin, you've you've done meditation. You you meditate quite frequently. I remember you you telling me that. I've done a little bit of meditation, uh, not like regularly or anything. But I found that I definitely agree that thinking about nothing is almost impossible. But I feel like I've been able to do it for like one or two seconds. But then like something comes up. So I feel like um, I don't know if it's if this is part of your experience, but I feel like meditation is something that you get better at with practice. And I feel like that's one of the only ways to improve. Definitely. And also you may practice and reach a state and then kind of fall back. Like all of a sudden you like feel like, oh yeah, I got a meditation down. And then you go to meditate one day and you can't find that spot that you're used to getting to. So it's kind of a, it's an interesting thing because it's never something that I think you can fully grasp, but working at it, you can, grasp it better there was actually on uh, just kind of going off what Ryland said there was actually a philosopher who uh who, who studied uh who studied platonism and the ancient uh the, the ancient philosophers of of western civilization but he also was was immersed in um in the um 
uh, quote unquote Easter. And I, I, um, I, I try to avoid, I try to avoid using that term because I, I was talking to, uh, to it again, uh, the, the Buddhist reverend who said that basically it's better to think about, um, the, the, like the, the philosophies in East Asia with a lot more nuance than simply just saying Eastern, because that kind of just stereotypes it as like, as, as, as irrational potentially. But, um, the, um, this, this philosopher had studied, had studied Buddhism and he actually lived in, um, he lived with, a with a, a, a Japanese Buddhist, um, monk, but, um, he said that, that Buddhahood is, is, is thinking of nothing. And if you meditate and, and you think of nothing for even one or two seconds, that's, that's, the te- that's temporary, uh, Buddhahood. That was kind of his view on that. So I thought that was just an interesting parallel to share with, uh, with yeah. Ryan's comment. Definitely. Yeah. And it's also interesting when you could kind of, uh, release all the thoughts that you have, the new thoughts that come in. Like, um, like even with the breathing technique, it's, it's very interesting how like you'll kind of work through your day and through all the troubles of your life. And then all of a sudden you'll have like these kind of ideas about things that are deep in you. Like you may kind of surface touch daily, but like all of a sudden, like the deeper parts of it come up and it, um, yeah, it can be really, it can be really good to kind of also help understand who you are, you know, like understand why your emotions are happening or like uh, what's really going on inside of you. And it, it's just a good moment to take for that. But yeah, that concept of not thought is, it's like almost impossible. And yeah, I don't know. It's a hard one. I know that like uh, Plato, I learned this this yesterday on listening listen to that same philosopher. Actually, uh, Plato had this idea of, of dream work in which basically things about you are revealed through dreams. And then um, obviously uh, a Freud picked up on that about... Um, Actually, actually, I don't, I don't know when, when Plato was. I think he was, he was what maybe like 500 uh, BCE. But anyways, Freud picked up on that in the early 20th century. Um, but also, um, there's the, obviously the, the idea of, of Carl Jung, who we talked about uh, last time, uh, who basically has this idea of the collective, um, the collective subconscious. Which Balin, I know Balin's very interested in that, and. Um, um, I, I think that 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 definitely ties into that. There's there, there's this there's this um, personal subconscious that um, that that's, that's kind of repressed. But then once you you think once you uh, let let yourself uh, let your mind sit, so to speak, it, it it comes up, and then you 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 can confront it and contemplate it. So I think that's um, I think that that's definitely a a very practical application of of meditation. Yes, definitely. And Jung was the one that uh, did the dream work quite a bit. Uh, him and Freud were, I guess partners and study together but uh Jung really delved deep into the the dream work and also into like um like he examined like people who were like in psychosis and manic and like people who had schizophrenia that were like manifesting these deities and stuff and he started to look at like religious concepts and these manic deities and kind of realizing like oh like these things all kind of are saying the same thing which goes into that collective consciousness is it's like, are these religions and these deities part of something that like these, you know, mentally ill people were manifesting or are they tapping into something? Yeah. It's kind of an interesting concept on that, all that. Yeah. Because if, if you compare, um, I mean, this was, this was something that I was talking about, um, uh, recently this, this month with, with Rylan who recorded our Zoroastrianism episode, if you, if you look at this, at, at this thing that, that, that I kind of view as an archetype, basically you look at a Zoroaster who, 
Um, when Zoroaster became a, a prophetic figure in Zoroaster in the Zoroastrian tradition, he was um, he was bathing in the river at the age of thirty, and then God revealed Himself to him. If you look at uh, Christianity, Jesus is baptized in the river at age thirty, and then the Holy Spirit descends and the heavens open up, and then God the Father uh, says, "This is my Son with whom I'm well pleased." And then you look at you go you fast forward into um, what is what is essentially um, the um, uh, at least in European terms, the medieval or Renaissance time, although it is in the, um, it, this takes place in India in which Guru Nanak is 30 years old. He bathes in a river and then he swept into heaven for three days. So it's just like a really interesting, that was like an interesting uh, quote unquote archetype that I found throughout uh, three different religions. Yeah. Um, actually, Joseph Campbell would call that the hero archetype uh, because like these people went through something and then all of a sudden they're kind of given this quest to like teach or to lead the people. And um, it's, it's quite common through a lot of different spiritual concepts. Um, and so like even Buddha, like when he rejected his princehood, went on this like quest to find, you know, the deep meaning of life. Um, so yeah, Jung would call it the, I think he calls it the hero ar archetype, but it's like this thing where like, somebody all of a sudden is given this quest in life and and then they like go on this journey the hero quest and they have to kind of fight life and death to find the true meaning of life um yeah it it uh young touched on it quite a bit i would actually like to ask about uh thoughts on or the general sort of idea of the afterlife relative to the theosophical society and and his members generally. Okay. So uh, most TS people are kind of in the idea of like the Vedic or the Buddhist idea of reincarnation. So like, um, especially Blavatsky taught this with the, the root races are kind of part of it where like our soul is like this energy in the universe that isn't extinguishable. Um, and so like, it kind of manifests it in different things. So like during your first incarnation, you would have been a rock or a mineral, and then you would have lived that life cycle. And then when that was gone, you would have become a plant. And then you would have lived that life cycle. And then you would have become an animal. And then you become a human. And then the next step would be to like an adept or a higher state. Um, but you can be kind of recycled into these like you could be a human multiple times until you're ready to move to the next step um, of consciousness. So a lot of people in TS, that's kind of their idea on it is like, uh, we just kind of, our soul comes back and it's manifested in something that may fit within like our, our comic, our karmic ways. Uh, so there's a thing called Dharma. I'm not sure if you guys are familiar with that but it's kind of like your life path and the way that the divine has laid out your life. Um, and so like your karma in this life affects your dharma for the next life. And so a lot of TS think of that, you know, like how are my works in daily life going to affect my next manifestation um, through the cycles of time? Uh, if, if I remember correctly from some brief reading I did uh, today regarding reincarnation, I believe it was um, Bl Blavatsky and, and another uh, uh, um, uh, 
Hayat member in the in the uh, or foundational member in, in the Theosophical Society who basically said that um, human beings reincarnate, um, or I, 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 I guess it could be other beings as well, reincarnate um, over over a period of like one thousand years, or one either one thousand two hundred or one thousand to 1,500, certainly 1,500 at the most, but then Leadbeater, I believe it was him who, who said that it was actually only like 200 years. So it was just really interesting, that idea of this intermediary process, kind of like in, in um, some strands of Buddhism in which you, you basically go through, you go through hell and then you reincarnate. Yeah, definitely. And Blavatsky, um, because she went through India and like kind of did it on the Himalayas, like so she went into Tibet and kind of went down through the Himalayas through like Nepal area. Um, she kind of gets more into the Buddha ideas and all that. Uh, but yeah, like it's kind of interesting because TS isn't necessarily like a religion um, that people kind of take their own take. And a lot of people kind of dismiss the numbers, right? Like, uh, like a thousand years, like it's kind of irrelevant. Like n that kind of stuff is more, I feel like the teacher put a number on it maybe than the actual like way it's supposed to be. Uh, yeah. Like, like for example, in, in, in biblical thinking, like, um, there, there, like, like the, there was the thousand year, uh, uh kingdom of, uh, of, of, of Jesus, or there, there, there was the millennium. I mean, that, that, that can be interpreted, uh, in, in a myriad of different ways in which is something like, um, uh, let, let's try to, uh, to live well so that we, we can spread the, the ethics of, of Christianity. And that, that can account for the, um, the, um, um, uh, well, th that's actually different than postmillennialism, but just, just, just like, um, um, just reading, reading, th reading numerology figuratively. Yeah. Um, and, uh, another question, this, 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 I guess kind of relates to, to reincarnation, but, but, but it certainly ties us, um, uh, into a, um, sort of, uh, very cosmic look at this, um, at the, at the Theosophical Society, which is, um, basically I recently learned today of the concept of the, um, uh, Akashic uh, record. I hope I'm pronouncing that uh, correctly. Oh, Akashic. Akashic, yes. Akashic record. Akashic record, um, which is basically this mental plane, and it's the sum of all mental emotions and mental thoughts uh, in, in a kind of other universe. So that being said, what what is this Akashic record, and, and how do people uh, access it? Uh, well, how to access is a great question. There's lots of different ways people say you can access it. Um, there's lots of different theories on what it is. Uh, it's kind of, I guess, the basic premises of the Akashic record is that it's like the, like the universe has knowledge of its complete self, right? Like, so the, how can I, like the universe is one thing, like we're all the same energy and in this energy is imprinted all that information, which would be compiled together as the Akashic record. Um, so there's, many different ideas and ways to get there, I guess. Uh, there's through meditation. I've heard of people doing like ritual work to get to it. Um, some people just claim they can get to it. I, it, it's kind of a, a tricky thing. Sometimes I wonder if it's like a placeholder for some other ideas and it's just easier to call it the Akashic record than to be like the divine cosmic energy that is all intertwined within us and how to read that. Um, yeah, that's, it does get brought up quite a bit, but it, it's kind of one of those things people have different opinions on and different flavors of what it really is and how to get there. So is it, is it like, it's just all information throughout the entire history of the universe? Just, in, is it just like 
information of I'm, I'm having trouble like understanding it is it just like all of information of anything that's ever existed or uh yeah so like that's the concept of it um is that it's the the access to all the information ever uh but i think like what it's hitting on deeper is more that like um like M theory for quantum physics is kind of getting into like we're all energy and energy that is kind of unique like each little piece of unique energy manifests like this like uh so like in quantum physics we're all like if you break us down to the smallest part we're like bouncing particle waves of energy and the way each one of those is shaped and formed and interplays with the other ones manifest this reality so the akashic record would be like basically being able to see the quantum map i guess in a way like to understand how all these pieces are coming together and going together and once you understand that then in theory you would have knowledge of everything because you would understand how the universe is manifested um but that's where you kind of run into some problems because people have different ways to get there and different kind of concepts of what that is. I have two things. Um, one of them, I'll be quick on the first one. Um, there was, I was watching a really fascinating video in which a, a, a Christian apologist, so someone who's, who's basically um, trying to use, you know, uh, rational arguments to, uh, to, to argue for their, their worldview, which is, which is Christianity, um, was basically saying that um, he, he was talking about um, like, like qu quantum, quantum theory, and he was saying that essentially um, the universe is, emerges from this um, from energy, and, and, ener and energy creates the universe, and the universe is essentially sort of a, a simulation, kind of. Um, and, then, and then secondly, what I'll say is that Balin and I, we, we've talked about this at lunch. We spent like two lunches talking about string theory, in which you were talking about nine or, or 11 dimensions and ideas of, of higher dimensional beings and so forth. Do you want to talk about that? Because you're definitely more of an expert on string theory than, than us. Okay. Balin's, Balin's humbly declining because he's he's... Yeah, um, but no, but it was really fascinating because we we talk about this at lunch about like, hey, you know, uh, it'd be it, it's it's interesting to think that this the, 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 we can only really perceive uh, three dimensions. Is that about yeah about three dimensions, and then time is currently uh, imperceptible uh, to us basically. Um, yet there are also well, kind of, and then there are like other dimensions on, on top. And also my uh, one of my friends, I was talking to him. Um, uh, like earlier this month, or maybe it was that towards the end of last month, uh, in which he said it'd be interesting if there were actually higher dimensional beings in the universe who are essentially undetectable to us, but are are sort of godlike because they've advanced to that stage. So I mean, it, it just it just opens opens up the door of possibilities to really an endless level. Definitely, and that's kind of where those adepts fall in. Like they're on that kind of straddling our plane and the higher plane. Um, it like that's how that would work. Uh, yeah. Uh, it gets, I don't know though, because it's kind of like it's interesting because TS or Theosophy, you can bring whatever to the table. So you have all these people bringing in like totally different ideas. Because uh, just recently I've been learning about the Mayans and the Mayan calendar. And that's actually a whole system based off of measuring the energy resonance in the universe. And like they, uh, like people kind of have misstrewed what it really means because it ended and you know, like they were like, oh, that's the end of the world. But really what they were talking about is like, basically like the universe is like a pebble got dropped in the water and their calendar is measuring the ripples and like showing the ripples in like layers. And um, that kind of just goes back to that, like, you know, quantum physics and string theory, like these ripples of energy and 
and kind of all going, you know, going different directions, but because they're interacting with each other, they create this and this manifestation. And so, yeah, like, so things like the Akashic records and those are trying to, I guess, tap into like an outside view of those ripples. The Mayan calendar is another example of that. Yeah. Uh, so what are some examples of symbolism in either the, the Theosophical Society or her Hermeticism yes. or Freemasonry, which we touched on last time, that contribute to higher understanding of reality? Oh, man. Uh, so everything in Freemasonry, every symbol is about higher reality and higher concepts. Um, like, I've, I'm not necessarily allowed to talk freely about some of the symbols, but uh, yeah, like... Uh, that's what basically how does it say it's a a system an allegory no, i can't shrouded in symbolism but anyways like the symbols are uh, are very key uh like there's a gentleman manly hall who isn't a theosophical society but he's um welcomed by them he's part of the philosophical research or philosophical research society and uh he says like symbolisms are really important because one symbol can hold a whole paragraph of words. And so like symbols are easy and quick to get a message across. And like, that's where they hold power. Um, yeah. I mean, there's lots of this theosophical society has lots of different symbolism that we kind of divulge in and like even our seal, it has like a, the Ouroboros. So it's the snake eating itself which is kind of the cycle of time, how time just kind of recycles itself and eats itself. Um, the middle is the, the star of David, but it kind of represents to us as above, so below, as within, so without. So like, you know, the heavens are on earth and our inner feelings are manifested on the outside of our life every day. And it's a good thing to remember, like what we're holding in our heart will manifest in our day. So if we're angry and grumpy, we're going to manifest an angry and grumpy day. Um, and then above that is, uh, it gets kind of controversial because traditionally it would be the swastika or what we call the fohat. And that is the cycle of earth. Um, and then above that is the, uh, the ohm symbol, which is the, the first sound or the, the manifestation of all sounds in reality. The, the concept of as above, so below, uh, in my understanding, was that that was, that was popularized um, as a, a, a part of uh, hermeticism. So like um, hermeticism and alchemy are a big part of TS. Um, I'd say a lot of the founding members were like, okay, so there's a gentleman judge who was a founding member with uh, Blavatsky. It was started by Blavatsky and another gentleman, Alcott, and judge was around that time. And in one of Judge's books, he said, a theosophical member should not have a claim to an organized religion. Like the only organized religion they should claim if they do is uh, masonry. And I think a lot of that is because of the symbolism and the uh, also the openness of it. Masonry doesn't necessarily like, Masons can come with different gods and still practice masonry with each other. So like, my fellow Masons don't have to believe the same thing I do, but we can still come together and work together. And I, I think the TS is kind of like that too. Like we don't have to believe the same thing, but we can all kind of work on the same concepts together. 
Yeah, Freemasonry is a very fascinating, um, a very, a very, very fascinating uh, a, a system um, because you, there, there, there's, there's, um, there's handshakes that that mean uh, different things. Is my understanding? I don't, I, I don't, I don't know a lot, a lot besides that because obviously it's, um, it's, uh, it, 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 it's, it's, uh, it's secret and it, it goes up by different levels and, and people learn more and more things, which, which I find absolutely fascinating. Um, um, but there's also um, basically, I my understanding is that Freemasonry started. Um, at least with the stonemasons in the medieval times building cathedrals, but you could also argue that it has uh, roots back to uh, Solomon's Temple in some uh, in some uh, ideas with um, a Hiram, Hiram Abiff, I believe, if I'm correct on that. He was supposed to be the uh, yes, the um, the like the mason of the of the temple, and then he was uh, he he was killed for the secret uh, the secret key or something to that effect. So yeah. the secrets of uh, yeah the secrets um, yeah. So he's, and he's kind of like a, a Jesus figure in a way, like he got resurrected um, after his death. So there's, yeah, some interesting things with him. Um, and like, he actually has an, I was reading in a Rosicrucian, the fellowship, Rosicrucian fellowship. Um, and they were talking about how, so King Solomon was like the spiritual guy. He was like the priest and Hiram Abiff was spiritual, but his spirituality was manifested in his works. So he built the temples and the symbols and all of that. And the goal of King Solomon was to bring Hiram and Solomon, the priestcraft and the working craft together to create this kind of unified ideology. And, but it, that's where he was killed and things didn't go awry. So um, like, that's the struggle with humanity. Now we have people who kind of build for their spirituality and then there's people who worship but they're not together and so people are working to try to build those things together or bring them together just continuing off of what you were saying you, you mentioned the rosicrucians and i i'm very fascinated with rosicrucians because of, of their of well, many reasons one uh, atlantis is a very fascinating concept um that i i know that, that that's also shared in, in the theosophical uh society as and um also their uh, interest in in egypt um is something i find absolutely very absolutely fascinating as well as well as um i believe uh hermes trismegistus uh plays a plays a large role in their um in their uh, uh views um but um basically I, I just wanted to mention that um but i think that that balin has some questions regarding uh theosophical views um on on, on alchemy and magic and so forth basically balin's wondering like um uh what, what what is the views of uh theosophists on on magic and things like that oh well uh that actually gets kind of controversial um it's interesting so like one of my friends william he uh teaches hermeticism and is deep into hermetics like uh he was teaching a class at theosophy about the tree of life and like breaking all that down um but like we were we we have like a bunch of books in the basement and we were kind of bringing them up and one of them was about black magic and uh some of the members kind of got upset we're like oh don't let that out into the public and um so the, yeah there's this kind of interesting thing there's definitely people who practice magic um all kinds of western magic like there's wiccans there who may worship the forest and kind of do more natural magic uh there's like william who's hermetic and he's more into like ritual westernized magic um so yeah it, it's pretty open but some people do kind of take 
take uh, heed with it, I guess is the best way to say. Like uh, when you start getting into dark magic, people kind of look at it funny and not it's not necessarily super accepted. Um, but I have seen people come in that, yeah, practice some pretty interesting stuff. So I find it so fascinating that, that you said your friend William teaches Hermeticism because Hermeticism is, is like an incredibly ancient uh, tradition of of first century um, of first century Egypt, uh, for the first century of the Common Era. Um, at, at least, although some people have argued that it's got, it's got that Hermes Trismegistus was actually the teacher of Moses, which is just a really uh, fascinating uh, view. And something I wanted to add because I was listening to a book that I recommend to everyone, uh, which is called. Um, uh, Revelations, uh, vision. I think it's visions, prophecy, and politics in the Book of Revelation. It's by uh, it's by a, an excellent uh, scholar of early Christianity. Her name is Elaine Pagels. And basically, in the book, um, there I, I learned that that there was this one, um, uh, like he was like a philosopher slash slash mystic. Although he seemed more, more of like a, a con man, but he he wrote this book. Um, this this was in like the ancient uh, times, second or third century perhaps fourth, he wrote a book called The Golden Ass, and it was a, um, it was a kind of um, a satire, uh, and he, he attacked two mystery, two mystery religions, and one of them was, was Christianity, and it was interesting because he, he basically showed that, um, that unlike the other religions in the Roman Empire, um, the difference was that it would be very pluralistic, like you, you could be part of this mystery religion here, learn the mysteries, ascend to the highest rank, and then basically go, go on your way to another one and, and be part of multiple different mystery religions at the same time. Whereas Christianity, um, what, what was said that, Hey, you you have to be, uh, you're, you're, you're part of this one or, or, um, or you're part of, part of the other ones. It can't be both ways, which is just, just really interesting to see how, how pluralistic the, uh, religion was in the ancient uh, Roman empire. Yeah, definitely. And that ties into masonry. So like masonry is the mystery schools and a lot of masons claim that it came from Egypt. Like that's where the root of masonry is held is uh, the builders of the pyramids. Um, and like uh, Hermes Trismegistus is a great, he was like the pe the person who brought the knowledge to Egypt, right? He brought them reading and writing and he like went on this like deep inner quest kind of, um, although it's kind of, the story is told as like an outer quest, but it can relate to the inner, like he got on a boat in this like black churning sea that was just this, darkness and the, the boat guide took him to a place and he was kind of given this knowledge but um yeah that it all like the mystery schools kind of bring i would say it's kind of like theosophy where it brings a bunch of different religious concepts together and kind of allows you to accept a bunch of different stuff so you could accept teachings from buddha and you could accept teachings from jesus and also learn from like Mohammed, like uh, you're not tied to one person's teachings or one set of ideas. All right, um, and um, basically, um, yeah, I mean, uh, just just to, to kind of go off of that, basically, um, my understanding would be that, um, like the mystery schools, that'd be I, we, I think we talked about this in the last episode. They'd be talking about things like like the Mithraic mysteries, for example, the the Bacchus mysteries, and so forth. That, that that's absolutely um, fa fascinating. Uh, and also something to add on to that would be um, there, at the Nag Hammadi um, Library, which was a very fascinating, um, which is a library that exists in Egypt and is associated with with Coptic monks, and it had all these very fascinating um, non-canonical texts. Many of them, not and many of them, in the Sethian Gnostic, tradi Gnostic tradition, some of the, and some of them in the Valentinian Gnostic tradition, and some of them in that prophetic tradition of 
Christianity that was outside of Gnosticism that died out with um, Athanasius in the fourth century, basically. But um, there, one of those texts there was this um, was called on. It was I think it was called Discourse on the Eighth, on the Eighth, or dis, it was I called discourse on the eighth and the ninth or something like that and basically what it was was it was a it was a text talking about uh, it was was outside of the christian tradition entirely but it was a a text from egypt talking about a an initiate and uh and his teacher and they were there there were different levels and there was like the, the person was going on the on the eighth level to the ninth level and they had the spiritual breakthrough in which they basically just started chanting vowels so i thought that was just an interesting um view of like ancient mystery uh schools yeah. Well, and then also like um, an interesting person, Leadbeater from Theosophical Society, he uh, he claimed that he could remote view and like kind of see into the past and channel his past lives. So he uh, wrote a whole book about how he was a so he was a modern day Mason, and he wrote a book comparing it to channeling when he was an Egyptian Mason, and he uh, puts the two together, and like it's really interesting. Like they both wore aprons. They kind of the rituals, the initiation rituals were kind of the same. Um, yeah, so I feel like these, the mystery schools, I would say are deep part of uh, theosophical society also, but they've kind of taken different forms through time, but they've always kind of kept the same core message. And it goes way back to like, yeah, Hermes Trismegistus. And because Hermes turned into Mercury when he became a Greek, and like, and now it's like the messenger, you know, and so he's kind of changed through time, but it's the same character or deity or idea. Yeah. Uh, regarding um, this idea of him going into his past, is, is there some sort of, um, is, is that, is that a practice that other founding members of the Theosophical Society have, have, have done and, and or, or currently do? And if so, is, is there a certain uh, a procedure by which, by which one uh, does that in theosophy? Uh, so yeah, there are people who still practice past life regression. Um, it can kind of be approached to different, different ways. Like some people may approach it through meditation. Um, some people may get hypnotized and try to kind of approach it. You know, like somebody may lead a novice into a past life regression. Um, there's also kind of like, there's a one gentleman, Greg, who, uh, he studies near-death experiences so people who've died and like he and like had these like profound experiences like seeing the light or doing kind of different things and he studied that a lot so like i feel like there's kind of different ways to to approach all that and you said that lead beater experienced a remote viewing is that is that kind of like astral projection in which you go outside of your body and and, and things like that yeah so uh lead beater that's what he talked quite a bit about um he like he did a lot of remote viewing. So like he has a book called Thought Forms where uh, they kind of, they would like, like look at a church with like a, a ser you know, a sermon going on, but look at it, like maybe sit across the parking lot from it and look at it and kind of just close their eyes and see like what colors they're emanating in their mind and what kind of forms those colors are bringing into their mind. So it's kind of this like, psychic view of things and then he would get into more deeper where he would try to like in that thought forms book he um, remotely viewed a sinking ship and kind of like explains their energy forms that he was perceiving um through that remote view and then he also was really big into like past regression 
like, you know, looking at his past lives and stuff. Um, yeah, I'm not sure. Like, Ledbeater can be a little bit controversial, like, with his personal life. Uh, so I'm, I'm not 100% sold on him, but uh, he he definitely, like, that's his thing. Like, he was into, like, remote viewing, past life regression, like, kind of digging deep into those concepts of ideas. And so there's a lot of people that follow his teachings and try to look you know, into their past lives and all that kind of stuff. All right. Um, do you, do you, um, Mr. Mr. Herman, have anything else you want you want to add about about about, about mystic, the mysticism of, of the Theosophical Society? Mm, I don't know. I mean, I guess my biggest point of it all is like, it's it's like Theosophy doesn't necessarily have like a a predetermined way. So like, if somebody brings in a mystic concept or a mystic idea, like we're able to approach it, and I I feel like the root of mysticism is kind of like that. Like it's kind of about being open to experience these things and to have these uh, experiences, you know, like to allow ourselves to enter into like something that we may say is not common life, you know, like through meditation, you may all of a sudden have this like profound thought where you're like, I never would have thought that thought, like, where did it come from? And that's kind of tapping into that deeper mystic part. And that's, in theosophical society like that's what we're trying to bring forward like not necessarily the path to get there but to like start allowing yourself to accept those things in whatever path you can get to that point in all right um we have reached the end of our episode on uh mysticism in the theosophical society um this has been the godcast i am xavier i'm rylan i'm Balin. i'm graham herman <laughs> And stay tuned.